I love those words of that song that we sang there at the end. Uh, By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Those are some of the most beautiful words we can sing uh, in, in songs. We, we thank Dustin and the choir and all our musicians. Thank them so much for leading us in worship this morning. If you're visiting here with us this morning, we're glad you're here. Thank you for uh, coming to spend this Lord's Day uh, with us here at Faith Bible Church. Uh, We uh, usually take the Lord's Supper the first Sunday of the month. Last week we had a guest speaker, so uh, we moved it to this morning. Uh, So at the end of the service, we'll be celebrating the Lord's table together. So I just want to remind you of that so you can be preparing your hearts uh, for that. Uh, This is an exciting time of year for God's people as uh, we celebrate the coming of God into the world in human flesh. And uh, this morning, we're going to begin a three-part Advent series, a sermon series, and our text for this series is Matthew chapters 1 and 2. So if you'll take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 1 uh, with me. Uh, most of you know that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, present the life and the ministry of Jesus from four different perspectives. Uh, they have four different audiences in mind, so it's kind of like four different camera angles of the life and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Mark's gospel presents Jesus as the Son of Man, um, as the servant of the Lord. Uh, Luke's gospel presents Jesus as the Son of Adam, focuses on his uh, humanity. John's gospel presents Jesus as the Son of God. It focuses upon his divinity and deity. But Matthew's gospel, the one we'll be in these next three weeks, presents Jesus as the Son of David, uh, the promised Jewish king, the Messiah. So Matthew's gospel uniquely is the royal gospel. Uh, The master thought of Matthew is that Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is the prophesied Messiah. In fact, over in chapter 2, verse 2 of Matthew, when the wise men show up, what do they say? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. We've come to worship him. So over the next three Sundays, what we want to do is focus on Matthew's presentation of the birth of Jesus as the king. And we want to bring three messages, the ancestry of the king, the arrival of the king, and then we'll look at the wise men, uh, last of all, the adoration of the king. We begin this morning in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 17. Now, I've, I've preached on this before, and I call this, Matthew, I call this Levi's genes, because I uh, remember Matthew's name was Levi. Uh, before uh, he came to faith in Jesus. Or we could call this Ancestry.com here this morning. Uh, But I'll just uh, go for the more mundane uh, title, The Ancestry of the King. Now, when we come to Matthew chapter 1, the beginning of the New Testament, we're often tempted to skip over this genealogy and go right to verse 18 to the birth of Jesus. Now, this section is often called the Big Gats. Um, I grew up with the King James Bible, and in the King James Bible, it'll say, you know, that Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob. In fact, there's 38 begats here in these verses. And I like the old Scottish preacher who began reading this one Sunday morning in church, and he said, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judah. And as he glanced ahead and saw the list to follow, he said, and they kept on begetting one another all the way down this page and halfway into the next. And that's kind of how it is when you read this passage. Now, the New American Standard Version I have doesn't say uh, beget. It says was born. 
The NIV translation says like that Abraham was the father of Isaac, but it's, but it's all the same. It's, it's a genealogy starting with Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus and traces the genealogy of Jesus back 2,000 years. Now, I'm not going to read all of this this morning. I want to read kind of the bookends of this pedigree. I want to read verses 1 and 2, and then I'll drop down and read verses 16 and 17. But in verse 1, it starts out the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The word book there is biblos, the word Bible. So it's the Bible or the book. The word genealogy is the word genesios in Greek, which is where we get our word genesis. So this is the, the Bible or the, 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 the book of the genesis or the origin or the birth of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, to Isaac Jacob, to Jacob Judah and his brothers. And then down in verse 16, and to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, or literally the Messiah. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, from the deportation to Babylon to the time of Christ, 14 generations generations. So reads God's inspired word. There's an old Peanuts cartoon of Snoopy. He's sitting on top of his doghouse and he's crouched over his typewriter pecking out his latest novel. And he begins with the words, it was a dark and stormy night. And Lucy comes by and in her usual candor, she says to Snoopy, she says, that's a terrible way to begin a story. Everybody knows that all good stories begin once upon a time. So Lucy walks away, and the next frame, Snoopy's kind of staring ahead for a moment. And then it comes to the last frame. He returns to his work, and he types out the words, Once upon a time, it was a dark and stormy night. Now, that story highlights the importance of a good beginning when writing a story. Uh, Good writers know that when you start a story, you want to grab the attention of the reader. You want some kind of a, of a hook to draw in uh, the reader. That's the cardinal rule of effective writing. And as we open the New Testament, we find Matthew here, of all things, begins with a genealogy, a long list of names. And so surely he's committed the cardinal sin of good writing. It's the worst possible way to capture people's attention with a dreary, monotonous list of very difficult names to wade through. Now, that's true of us today, but in Matthew's day, beginning with the genealogy would have made perfect sense because the gospel here, this gospel of Matthew, is going to tell us who Jesus is, and to the Jewish mind, a person cannot be divorced from his past or his pedigree. And you know from reading the Bible that the Jews had a keen interest in ancestry, a lot of genealogies in the Bible. And Matthew's going to go on in his gospel to argue that Jesus is the king of the Jews. So up front, he has to establish the pedigree or the credentials of Jesus as the king. Now, in Judaism, genealogy established your heritage, obviously established that you were a Jew. You had to be of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It established your inheritance. You had to be from a certain tribe to get your inheritance. And it also established your rights. If you're of the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron, you could be a priest. If you're of the tribe of Judah and the family of David, you could be part of the royal line. 
But even today, people want to know their heritage. With all the advanced technology we have today, ancestry services are popping up everywhere. I mean, there's Ancestry.com, MyHeritage, 23andMe. I'm sure there are dozens and dozens more. But we all want to know where we came from and, and where, we, uh, where we are in life. I like what Mark Twain said about genealogies. He said, why waste money looking up your family tree? Just go into politics and your opponent will do it for you. And I like that. In fact, some politicians have searched their own genealogy and it didn't go very well for them. But anyway, I'll leave that as it is. But the point is, for, for all of us here, there's a story behind our story. So here in Matthew's gospel, before we're given the account of Jesus' conception or Jesus' birth, we're presented with his messianic credentials, his, his family tree or bloodline or pedigree. So who he, who he is is determined by where he came from. Now what I want to do this morning, since we have all these names before us, is look at three main lessons that we learn from this genealogy and not go into depth in all the issues, but we'll talk about a few of the issues as we go through here, but three important lessons in this genealogy. The first one is frailty or mortality. A long list of people living and dying. It speaks of how frail and mortal we are. The second lesson is fulfillment, or we could call this the word Messiah, that Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. And then finally, the last real practical point here we see in this, in this genealogy is favor, or we see God's mercy. So the first thing that stands out here is frailty or mortality. A genealogy like this brings us face to face with how frail and mortal we are and, and should humble us. I mean, as your eye just drifts down this page, I mean, you think about Abraham in his day. I mean, a, a giant, a colossus for the Lord, a, a man of great significance, yet he dies. He's replaced by Isaac. Isaac's on the scene, and then comes Jacob, and, and on and on we can go. Forty-two generations, 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus. And anytime you read a genealogy like this, every one of these names is significant. Every one of these people were significant in their time. Yet one generation is buried in the dust of another. A generation's like waves. They rise and, and break and crash on the shore of history, and then they're replaced by another. So in, in the breadth and the, the scheme of history, time marches on. And we are frail and mortal and very, very temporary. I mean, you read a genealogy like this, we can feel uh, like little more than just kind of passing figures in the parade of history. And in a sense, for all of us, that's true. But, but this genealogy also tells us that God has been up to something for 2,000 years, going all the way back to Abraham. Every one of these people in this genealogy are involved in this story that God is creating. All of the, the names here had a role in the coming of the Messiah. They were all part of a greater story than just themselves. And it's been well said, I'm sure many of you have heard this, that history is his story. All of history is his story. And the story of the Bible begins, obviously, back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve there in a perfect setting. They're there with God in fellowship. And then an antagonist comes in, Satan. And what does he do? He, he leads them into sin. And we have a crisis in the story. Man is now sinful and separated from God. And the, the story really begins in some ways in Genesis 3.15 when God says, 
One is going to come from the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And the trajectory of the rest of the Bible is about the coming of that Messiah or that Redeemer. We find out in the Bible he'll come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Jacob's son Judah, from Judah's son Jesse, and ultimately through uh, King David. It's the story of God's redemption through his coming Messiah. And if your life and my life are going to have significance, we have to tie our story to Jesus' story. Someone said it like this, if you're not part of his story, you're his story. (laughs) It's a good way to put it. If you're not part of his story, uh, you're history. Our only hope, your hope and my hope to have eternal significance is to tie our story to his story by trusting in him. That is the only life of significance. I was reading a book by Ben Patterson a while back. He's a really good writer. I enjoy his books. It was a book on the Psalms. And in the book, he tells this story. He says, a most unusual internet auction was held on eBay in September 2005. A fundraiser for a nonprofit organization called the First Amendment Project offered to the highest bidder the opportunity to be written into a Stephen King novel, to be killed, actually. So you're going to get written into the novel, but your character is going to get knocked off. But billed as a gift for the ultimate fan, the offer promised literary immortality for the highest bidder. After 76 bids were received, the winner paid $25,100 to see his name written into a Stephen King story. And then not to be outdone, John Grisham promised to write the highest bidder into one of his stories, and that went for $12,100. But Ben Patterson says this at the end of that story. He says, the appeal of being written into a story bigger and better than the one we are living runs deep into our souls. It does, doesn't it? I mean, the, the desire for all of us to be part of and written into a bigger story then just what we're living down here in this world runs deep in our souls. And we can be part of a bigger and greater story, the Bible tells us, through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, we find eternal significance by tying our story to His story. And it may be that you're here this morning and you say, look, I'm just a nobody and I'm insignificant. Well, that's all of us. That's everybody. It's everybody that's ever lived other than the Lord Jesus. Maybe you're getting old. Maybe you're looking in a few years, you're going to pass off of the scene. You wonder if your life's really going to count and really have any significance eternally. And the only way that you and I can face death and realize that our lives are going to have eternal significance and that we will be remembered for eternity is to make our life part of His story by trusting um, in the Lord Jesus. Because the moment you trust in Him and you tie your story to Him, your story changes forever. We become part of something great, something cosmic, and something transcendent. So we look at ourselves and we see how frail and how mortal and how temporary we are. But if you've never done so this morning, why not put your story into His story and find meaning and significance and ultimate purpose in life through Him? So the first thing we see here in this genealogy is just our our frailty and how we got to be tied to Him to be significant. The the second lesson for us I see here is fulfillment. And I would also use the word here, Messiah. This genealogy here is the ideal bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It it bridges the two Testaments, if you will. Because the Old Testament is filled with all these prophecies about the coming Messiah, 
And now the New Testament opens with His coming and begins here with His ancestry. And it shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies, that He's qualified to be Israel's Messiah, that He's qualified to be the King. Notice the very first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We often think that Jesus Christ was Jesus' name, but His name was Jesus, right? I mean, it means Yahweh saves. The word Christ is a title. It means the anointed one, or literally, it's Messiah. So you could translate this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. So His name's Jesus, Yahweh saves, but His title is Uh, He's the Messiah. Now, right off the bat here in verse 1 of the New Testament, Matthew ties Jesus to the two great Old Testament covenants. Remember, God made a covenant with Abraham. He told Abraham He'd give him land, He'd give him descendants, and He said, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's ultimately fulfilled through Jesus. So Abraham was the father of the race. So To be the Messiah of the Jews, you had to be a descendant of Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. But you also had to be a descendant of David because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with King David that one of his descendants would sit upon his throne and rule over his kingdom forever. So Abraham was the father of the race, the father of the racial family. David was the father of the royalty or the royal family. But notice the order here. It's Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham came first. He lived in 2000 B.C. David lived in 1000 B.C. But David's listed first because David is the one through whom the kings come. And that's the focus here in Matthew chapter 1, that Jesus comes from David. In fact, in verse 6, the only man in this genealogy, and many of them were kings, the only one to be called king is David. It refers to him as David the king. So anyone uh, claiming to be the Jewish Messiah had to be of the race of Abraham and had to be of the royalty of David. And so Jesus fits the bill for Israel's promised Messiah. So that's what this genealogy is all about. That, That baby in the manger is David's greater son. He's the Messiah. Now, there's a striking symmetry in this this genealogy that's interesting here. Uh, Matthew, um, his name previously was Levi. He was an accountant. Um, He was a tax man. Remember when Jesus came and called him, he was there in a tax booth. He worked for for the IRS, for the Israeli Revenue Service. And that Jesus came and called him. So being a tax man, an accountant, he likes things orderly and organized and in straight lines. So what's fascinating about this genealogy is he gives it in three chunks of 14 names each. Now, what's interesting is he leaves a lot of names out, which was common in Jewish genealogies. They didn't put every name in there. Um, When it says that to so-and-so was born so-and-so, the Jewish mind understood that it's not necessarily your father, it's just a descendant. So if it was his son or grandson or great-grandson, it could say that that person was born of this person. So it's a selective genealogy, and it's underscoring Matthew's purpose. So they didn't need every generation here to prove the point. But David is the first one mentioned. He's the son of David. Then verse 6, David the king is mentioned. And it's interesting, David here, his name, he's the 14th person mentioned in the genealogy. 
So David's the 14th person mentioned, and then the genealogy is divided into three sets of 14 names. So people say, why the focus here on the number 14? Well, in, uh, in the Hebrew language, there's something called gematria. And in gematria, there's a numerical value for letters in the alphabet. And if you take the name David, or in Hebrew, it's David. David, if you take the D and the, just the continents, they only had consonants in their language. Take the D and the V and the D, that adds up to 14. So David's name, the numerical value of David is 14. So David's the 14th person mentioned, three sets of 14, because what this genealogy is crying out to a Jew who's reading it is, David, David, David. That Jesus is the son of David. He is the one who's qualified uh, to be the Jewish Messiah. And he's even born in David's city. When we get over to chapter 2, we'll see that he's born in the city of David in Bethlehem. And you think about this, when Jesus came along during his life and ministry, all people had to do to prove that he wasn't the Messiah was go down to the temple, get his birth certificate there, and prove that he wasn't qualified to be king. But they never did it. Nobody ever questioned the lineage or the ancestry of Jesus. There weren't any birthers back in the New Testament when Jesus was born. So he's qualified to be the Messiah and there was no way after 70 A.D. to prove this. Think about that. In 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed, all the genealogical records were destroyed as well. So Jesus comes at a unique time in history when his genealogy can be proven. Now, down in verse 16, you get the climax of this genealogy. And it's, it's emphasizing here that Jesus' birth is different from all these men before him. Notice it says, and to Jacob was born Joseph. Now, that would be the father of Jesus. Notice, Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who's called Christ. Every other form of the word was born up to this point has been an active verb. For the first time now, it's here in the passive. And when it says here that Joseph was the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, the, pre the preposition there, uh, the, the word home is um, in the feminine, the, the pronoun there. So Jesus was born of Mary, not of Joseph. It's making it clear in this passage. In other words, there's no act here of male begetting. Jesus is legally the son of Joseph, but physically, he is only the son of Mary. Now, that raises the question, if you're reading this, well, then who was the father? Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. When he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 23 quotes Isaiah 7, She'll be, he'll be born of a virgin. Down in verse 25, Joseph kept Mary a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus, a son, and called his name Jesus. So if Mary is the mother and Jesus is not really the physical descendant of Joseph, then why is Joseph's lineage given here? It's because legality came through the Father. And obviously for people who knew Jesus, it was assumed that he was the son of Joseph. 
But we have Mary's genealogy over in Luke chapter 3 that traces it all the way back to Adam. And Mary as well was a descendant of King David. So Jesus was a descendant of David physically through Mary and legally through Joseph. Now one other thing here to kind of thicken the plot even a little bit more, it's very important that Jesus was not a physical descendant of Joseph. Because there's a man mentioned in chapter 1, verse 11, named Jeconiah. He was also known as Coniah. He was also known, known as Jehoiakim. But back in the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 30, God pronounced a curse on Jeconiah. And this is what he said to him. Write this man down childless. Now, Jeconiah, we know, had at least seven children. And yet God says, Write this guy down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. So if Jesus had been a legal descendant of Joseph through Jeconiah, he'd not be legally, legally have right to the throne. So by Jesus being a physical descendant of Mary and only a legal descendant of Joseph, the curse of Coniah is bypassed in Jesus. I mean, think about the, the intricacy and the detail of the Bible and the thing it presents like this. No person could ever come up with all of this, all these details. Were it not for the virgin birth of Jesus, it would be impossible for him uh, to sit on David's throne. So Jesus is not an actual descendant of Joseph, but a biological descendant of, of uh, David uh, through Mary. And so Jesus here is the one of whom the prophets wrote. He's the Messiah. So it's all come full circle here, and this genealogy is about fulfillment. Well, let me just give one final thought here of application about this. When you read this genealogy, it's not all tidy and clean and perfect, is it? I mean, it, it's full of all kind of frustration and failure and sin. I mean, each one of the lives that are listed here, even in the lives of the godly men like David, he sinned with Bathsheba and committed adultery. I mean, it's, it's filled with all kinds of sin. And it tells us that God uses all the, the stuff of life, even the messy stuff of life, and through all of that, God can still accomplish His purposes. And I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of comfort. That even in the events we wouldn't plan in our lives, even in the sin and the frustration in our lives and the mess of life, all those things can be used by God to fit into His plan for our lives and to ultimately accomplish um, his purposes. God is at work in and through all of this, weaving it together to accomplish His purpose. That ought to bring us a lot of comfort this morning. God brought His plan to fruition in spite of a lot of failure and a lot of frustration. So this genealogy, we see frailty or mortality. We see, uh, we see uh, fulfillment. We see the Messiah here. But finally, uh, this passage speaks of favor or mercy. Here's a very important thing to remember. As you open up the New Testament, the very first thing you read is this genealogy tells us not only about the pedigree of the king, but it tells us about the nature of his kingdom. What will his kingdom be like? And this passage tells us that his kingdom will be a kingdom of grace and mercy and forgiveness, that outlaws and outcasts are welcome in his kingdom. I mean, think about who makes up the lineage of David. 
It's a bunch of sinners. I mean, even the best of the people here have massive failures in their lives. Jesus' family tree was filled with sinners. Now, one thing that's unique about Jesus' genealogy, five women are mentioned, Mary being the final one. But four women are mentioned here that many people believe were all Gentiles. Um, Two of them were prostitutes. One was from a cursed race of people. One was an adulteress. I mean, Tamar posed as a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute from Jericho. Ruth was a member of the cursed Moabite people. And Bathsheba, notice it doesn't even give her name in verse 6. And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. I'm embarrassed to even mention her name and mention this scene here. I mean, what a, what a cast of characters. All of them may be Gentiles. And back then when you had a genealogy, especially of an important person, one of the things you were trying to show is there wasn't any Gentile contamination in your line. And yet here it's highlighted, and these women are highlighted as well. We see sinful, shady characters. Matthew doesn't make any attempt to, to whitewash the black sheep in Jesus' family. Heard about a man who uh, paid $500 to get his family genealogy figured out, and then he paid $2,500 to suppress it after it had been done. And uh, that's kind of how we might feel sometimes about looking at who our, our forefathers are. I know I've told this story before, but it's my favorite genealogy story. Uh, this family was going to have their genealogy written up, and, and uh, they, they went back and found all the different names, but um, this biographer was hired to kind of write it all out and make it all look good. But they had this one black sheep in the family, Uncle George, who was uh, uh, electrocuted, uh, executed in the electric chair for murder. So they wondered how the, bi- the biographer would handle this. He said, it's no problem. He says, I'll say Uncle George occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. <laughs> he was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a real shock. <laughs> That's probably true of all of us in our families, and, and maybe even in your own life, you came in here this morning haunted by sin. You often were haunted by our past and regrets and sins in our lives. And maybe some of you here have really messed up the one shot at life that God has given to you. But as you open up the New Testament, what we read here at the beginning is, is that Jesus accepts sinful people into his kingdom. And if Jesus had such terrible sinners for forefathers, we could expect that he would have sinners as his followers as well, even the worst of sinners. There's forgiveness with Jesus, even for the people mentioned in this genealogy, even the prostitutes who are mentioned there. And that leads me to a story I ran across. There's a well-known preacher some years ago that went to Hawaii, and uh, he woke up about 3 o'clock in the morning. You know, your time's all messed up. He woke up wide awake at 3 in the morning, didn't know what to do, so he just decided to go down and, and find a nearby diner. So he finds the nearest diner that he can find and goes in there and there's kind of a lot of seedy characters in there at that time of the morning. And as he's sitting there and the booth behind him, uh, several women walk in that he can tell obviously are, are, are prostitutes. And he hears them begin to talk and they're loud and boisterous. And one of them is named Agnes. And as she tells how the next day is going to be her birthday. She's going to be 39 years old. They finally get up after that eventually and leave and so this, this pastor who's sitting there goes and talks to the man who owns the diner. His name's Harry. He says, Harry, you know, tomorrow night we got to have a birthday party here at 3 o'clock in the morning for Agnes. So he agrees to do that, and they're going to make a cake and all. And then here's where the writer picks up the story. 
He says, at 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I picked up some crepe, crepe paper decorations at the store and made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes in me. At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready. After all, I was kind of the MC of the affair. And when they came in, we all screamed happy birthday. Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her, and she was led to sit on one of the stools along the counter. We all sang happy birthday to her. Then when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it and just openly wept. Look, Harry, she said, is it all right if I, if I take the cake with me? I want to take it home. So she got off the stool, picked up the cake, listen to these words, and carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, she walked slowly toward the door as we all just stood there motionless while she left. When the door closed, there was stunned silence and nobody knew what to do. So I said, why don't we have a word of prayer? Looking back on it, it seems more than strange for a pastor to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry, the owner of the diner, leaned over with a trace of hostility, said, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of a church do you belong to? In one of those moments when just the right words came, I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited for a moment and almost sneered as he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Well, that's the kind of church Jesus Christ came to create, isn't it? He came to create a church and a kingdom where the excluded are included. Jesus is the the son of David, the son of Abraham, who came to welcome sinners like Agnes and like Rahab and like Tamar and like David and like you and me. I mean, to me, it's beautiful. The very first page of the New Testament, when you open it up, you see that there's no barriers in Christ's kingdom. There's no sex barrier. It's males and females. There's no social barrier. It's Jews and Gentiles. And there's no sin barrier. The worst of sinners can come and receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And that's the message of Christmas, ultimately. That Christ's kingdom knows no bounds. Christ has come to this world to save sinners. And you and I can add our name to His spiritual tree this morning by putting our faith and our our trust in Him. Justin quoted that verse earlier this morning, John chapter 1 and verse 13, or, or chapter 1 and verse 12. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Why don't you come to him this morning if you've never done that? No matter how much failure, how much mess, how much disaster there's been in your life in the past, he will forgive you and wash away your sins this morning if you'll come and trust in him. Look, the Lord Jesus is putting together a list and he's checking it twice. We want to make sure our name is on it. We've written our story into his story so our life can have eternal significance through him. Let's pray together. If there is anyone here this morning, you've never taken Jesus to be your Savior, I pray you'll do that now. 
that you'll tie your story to His story as you believe in Him, the one who lived a sinless life and died that atoning death on the cross and rose again for you. She'll believe in Him and receive Him. Father, we recognize, all of us do, how frail we are this morning, how short our time here is in this world. We look at this genealogy and we see one generation buried in the dust of another. But Father, we recognize our lives can have eternal significance. We tie our story to Your story through faith in Your Son. Father, we look back at that first Christmas and we know that on that first Christmas people were longing for the coming of the Messiah into the world. I pray that we will long for your coming again. So we'll wait for our Messiah to come and to set things right and to set up his kingdom that will never end. And now, Father, as we prepare to gather around the Lord's table, I pray that you'll prepare our hearts to fellowship with our Lord Jesus. We ask these things in his precious name.